Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Before we begin with the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. Um, my name is Ben Murray and I'm from the Murray Bashir Institute. We've been fortunate enough to have had um, Guy Thwaites as a visiting scholar for the past few days. Um, Guy is the director of the Oxford University Clinical Research Unit in Vietnam. Um, he originally trained in Cambridge, um, then worked in London, did a PhD in Vietnam, went back to London and then he got recruited to head up the Oxford Research Centre based in Ho Chi Minh City. Um, Guy is a, an infectious diseases physician and also a um, clinical microbiologist. And he's responsible for the scientific strategy of the program in Vietnam, of the Okru unit, um, with his major research themes of emerging viral infections, dengue, brain infections, tuberculosis, malaria, enteric infections, antimicrobial drug resistance, and care of the critically ill. And Guy has got an interest in all of these areas. He's, a, he's an international leader in a number of them, especially brain infections and drug-resistant infections. And um, I'll hand over to him to entertain us for the next hour. Thank you for being here. So thank you, and, and good evening, everyone. I hope you can hear me uh, at the back. I was told to project. Is that right? Can you hear me? Good. Um, so it's a great pleasure to be here in Sydney uh, to talk to you about um, one of my favourite topics, um, antimicrobial drug resistance. Um, as Ben has said, I'm a, I'm a functioning doctor. Um, I see patients still um, in Vietnam, I see them every day. I do have to do quite a lot of travelling, so I'm not seeing them when I'm travelling. But uh, um, I do see the patients and I confront the enemy every day. And the enemy is the bacteria and the fungi and the parasites um, that... Uh, infect my patients. So I'm going to run through today over a period of about 50 minutes um, what I know about uh, antimicrobial drug-resistant infections in Southeast Asia. So I'm going to start right at the beginning. It's always a good place to start, I think. And um, I'll give you a brief overview of the history of antimicrobial agents. Okay. Um, and the first agents that were, were, uh, were, available, that were available to treat infections were the anti-malarial drugs. So on the left there, you see a nice picture of the chinchona plant. Um, this grew in Peru in the 14th and 15th centuries, and people recognized that when you made an infusion from this plant, it cured your fevers. And in particular, it cured what they recognized as ague, or, or what was subsequently known to be malaria. Um, and it was the Jesuits, and particularly the Roman priests coming out of the Catholic Church, who recognized this, and they brought it back to Rome in about, the, in about 1650. And there was a lot of malaria in Italy at that time, around the Campania, around Rome. In fact, it was only Mussolini who managed to get rid of malaria in, in about 1920 and 30. Um, and they gave the infusions from this plant and cured malaria. But it didn't become a kind of recognized treatment until this man, Charles Marie de la Condamine, um, made it into a, um, a saleable and, and replicable drug, if you like. 
But this was the first antimicrobial agent that was widely used throughout the world to treat infections. And it wasn't really until this man here, so this is Paul Ehrlich, uh, working in Germany in uh, the sort of 19, uh, 1890s to about 1910. Um, and he was interested in dyes, particularly, and the aniline dye industry. Um, and he figured out that dyes could be very specific and they could just dye and they could just stain certain things. And he reasoned that if that was true of dyes, um, it was possible that they might be able to kill certain things very specifically too. And he generated this idea of a magic bullet to be able to go in into a person and selectively kill the infection that, is, that, was, that was affecting that particular person. And he invented the first antibiotic um, in 1910 called Salvarsan, which was used to treat syphilis at the time. Um, but then after that, um, it wasn't until 1928, until the rather famous event, and this is um, Alexander Fleming, and I'm sure you know the story, but he was working in London. Uh, he left a, a plate of bacteria on his um, windowsill, and he went off on holiday. And when he came back, he found a mold growing on that plate and a ring of, of, of inhibition of the bacteria that were also growing on that plate. And he recognized that that mold was producing something that was killing those bacteria. And that was the story and the start of penicillin. Uh, and that was in 1928, although it didn't really become um, produced in sufficient quantities to be used clinically until the late 1940s. Um, so that is the, star, the start of, of, of the antimicrobial era, if you like. Um, and a lot has happened since. And I'm sorry, this is going to be difficult to see from, from the back. Uh, but you have antimalarials here, up the top here. So this is when they were discovered, and you've got all the way back here to quinine, which I was telling you about here in, in 1630 and beyond. And then you've got the antibiotics here. So you've got the sulfonamides, which is salvarsan, that's Ehrlich's work, um, and penicillin by, by Fleming. And then lots of antibiotics discovered in this period, really between about 1950 uh, and about 1970. And the same is true of drugs that were, were active against TB, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. And then down here, um, you have the antiretrovirals, so the drugs that are, that are uh, used to treat HIV. And they, as you will probably be aware, HIV was recognized in the early 1980s, um, and within 10 years, they were fir the first drugs were being made available, and then highly active antiretroviral therapy coming in uh, at the turn of the century. So that's the sort of broad overview of the history. Um, and I thought I'd just go through a few of the definitions, because it's important to be clear, because it is a little bit confusing. Um, so an antibiotic is a substance... This is the strict definition, by the way. The antibiotic is a substance produced by another microorganism. So remember Fleming's plates. Um, produced by another microorganism, which kills another microorganism, and predominantly bacteria or fungi. Okay? So that is what an antibiotic is. An antimicrobial is any substance... Now, that can be an antibiotic, but it could also be a synthetic chemical just created by um, the innovation of man, uh, which kills another microorganism. And that could be any microorganism, so a virus, a parasite, um, or, or a bacteria. So from that, you get antibiotic resistance and you get um, antimicrobial resistance. And the two are often, at least um, in the press particularly and, and, and popularly, they're used interchangeably. But they are slightly different because of those two definitions here. So antibiotic resistance is the genetically determined ability of bacteria and fungi to resist killing by an antibiotic. 
And the genetically determined bit is really important because that means that the bacteria can pass that ability to resist killing onto its progeny, onto its, the bacteria that, 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 it, that come from it. Um, and therefore, it's, uh, it can expand and, uh, within a population of bacteria and cause a problem. And antimicrobial resistance, again, is the same, except it's to any antimicrobial agent. Okay, so it's very important to, to try and keep those definitions um, in mind when we're talking about this vast subject of antimicrobial resistance. Um, so how does resistance occur? Well, this is really just Darwinian evolution. Okay? So when there is a population of bacteria, there will be a small number of them, maybe only one in every 10,000 or one in every 100,000 of them, that will be inherently will contain the mutations in their genes that confer resistance. When you add anti an antibiotic or an antimicrobial um, to, to those bacteria or to those fungi or parasites or viruses, then those rare mutants will become selected for. All the rest will be killed, they will be left. And then they will start to generate and they will uh, become the predominant infection in that particular individual. And then you will have an antibiotic or antimicrobial resistant organism. And so it's, it's just very, very classic Darwinian evolution. You provide a selection pressure on a particular gene that confers the ability to survive in the face of an antibiotic. And those bacteria will survive and replicate and become the dominant um, species, if you like. And so <clears throat> what's happened with every single time that we've introduced a new antimicrobial resistance has occurred. So what this slide shows you, so his time along here going from 1930 to 2010, and these are the introductions of new antimicrobial agents, both antibiotics and also some um, uh, antimalarials. And the dark bits are when the anti antimicrobial has remained susceptible, or the bugs have remained susceptible to that particular antimicrobial. The light bits is when resistance has developed. So you can see very quickly that with every single agent that has ever been introduced into medicine, antimicrobial resistance has occurred. Some have taken small amounts of time, others have taken quite a long period of time, but it has always occurred. So that's a problem. And many people foresaw this, including Fleming himself. So he said in his, um, this is in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, you can read it there, the thoughtless person playing with penicillin treatment is morally responsible for the death of the man who succumbs to infection with the penicillin-resistant organism. So he foresaw very, very easily that bacteria would evolve to become resistant, and of course he was, he was exactly right. So we know all about this, what can we do? Um, to prevent it. Well, one of the lessons that we learned very early on was about the treatment of TB. Okay, so TB, a devastating infection, probably kills, still kills somewhere between 1.5 and 1.8 million people in the world each year. Um, and until 1948, 1947, 1948, the only treatment for TB was lying in bed. Okay, so in the in the European Alps, for example, in the 1930s, there were over 100,000 beds for people with TB in tuberculous sanatoria. So you may have read books. There's, there's a very famous book by Thomas Mann called The Magic Mountain, which is all about a sanatoria uh, in Davos. Um, and 
It didn't really cure anyone. Drugs became available, uh, discovered by this man, this is Selman Vaxman, um, in the late 19, or the mid-1940s. And Vaxman, um, this, this was his Nobel Prize acceptance speech. At the top of it, he put, the Lord hath created medicines out of the earth. He that is wise will not abhor them. And his overriding hypothesis for all of his work, which was very long, and he discovered a number of different antibiotics, was that in the soil, one would be able to find substances that killed microorganisms. And he was right. And he found a fungus called Streptomyces griseus. doesn't really matter what the name is. But he found this fungus that produced a substance which he called streptomycin, which was the first TB drug. And it was extremely effective. So this is guinea pigs, so the, 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 um, the animal of choice for TB experiments. Guinea pigs are uniquely susceptible to TB. In fact, it was the diagnostic test for a while, was to take someone's um, sputum or lymph node and inject it into a, into a, guinea, in a guinea pig to see whether the bug grew. We've got a little bit better at it uh, now. We don't need guinea pigs, um, although it's still very slow, what we do. Anyway, so um, guinea pigs with TB treated with streptomycin, all of the guinea pigs um, got better. Without, none of them did. But the problem was is that when humans began to be treated with this, and the first trials were done in 1948, 1949, um, with one drug, they found that resistance um, occurred. And what I'm showing you here, so this is months of treatment here. So one, two, three, four, five, six months of treatment. And here's the percentage of bugs that have become resistant to this agent. Okay, so you can see, so just, just concentrate on the gray bars first. So you can see very rapidly, 80% of those bugs by month three or four are resistant to this bug, to this drug. So they don't work, the drug doesn't work. But what they found was that if you added one other drug and then another drug became available just around the same time called PAS, which is stand for P here. If you added P to S, to the streptomycin, you got very much less resistance. And this concept of adding drugs together so that you prevent the likelihood of resistance has been a very important one in infectious diseases. Um, and this principle has really been um, guided by, by TB therapy and still remains an incredibly important principle for the treat treatment of many infectious diseases, but particularly TB, but also HIV. So you, the use of more than one agent, it just makes it less likely that those very rare mutations that I was telling you about actually manage to succeed because there's another drug killing uh, that population. So, <clears throat> so this is the root of our current predicament um, uh, globally. So as I've said, there was this wonderful period between about 1940 and about 1970 when lots and lots of antibiotics were discovered. But the problem has been after this period, and particularly after about 1980 and 1990, um, nothing really has happened. And you have this wonderful quote, or it just looks desperately stupid right now, from the Surgeon General in 1967 when he said, it's time to close the book on infectious diseases. And you know, li little does he know how often he would be quoted by people like me. Um, <laughs> I mean, the retrospectoscope is a very good thing, but um, he, he was very wrong, so he said that there. And now we have a real problem because we have very few drugs left and we don't have very many being made. There, there is some optimism, which I, I, I can come to later. Uh, but uh, that's, that's the predicament that we're in at the moment. Anyway, so the question is, why is an Englishman standing in front of you 
from the University of Oxford talking about antimicrobial resistance in Southeast Asia. So I thought I'd give you a little bit of background um, into the work that we do in Southeast Asia, um, why we do it and, and how we do it. Um, so the story starts from the Dreaming Spires of Oxford here with this man here and this man here. So this is David Wetherill. There's no reason why you would know him. He's actually a very famous um, scientist. Uh, but he had an idea in the late 1970s um, that it would be a very good idea to set up um, research units in the places with the most infectious diseases, to be able to study them properly in the field, in the clinics, in the hospitals. Um, and he persuaded this man here, who was at the time very important to a charity called the Wellcome Trust. Now the Wellcome Trust, so this, this here is Henry Wellcome, um, very excellent um, Moustache. Um, he was alive between about 1870 and about 1930. He was responsible for um, setting up the Wellcome Burroughs Drug Company. Interestingly, he was an American by birth, but he chose to, uh, come, to, to, come, to the, come, come to the UK and he, and he rescinded his, his, his US nationality and became a British, British man. I think there's quite a few people at the moment who are thinking that that's also potentially quite a good idea. Um, anyway, he did that and he made a lot of money and he died in about 1930 and he set aside a trust fund, um, which at the time wasn't that large and it was very connected with Burroughs Welcome, um, the drug company. The drug company did well, did very well, um, did extremely well um, up until about 1980, 1985. They were giving out small grants at this stage. They were still very keen on supporting tropical medicine and they gave the first small grants to David to start up the, um, the first tropical units, as they, call, as they were called. Um, and this, is, this looks like a photo that, well, it could have been any time, really, couldn't it? It looks as though it could be 1880 as much as 1980, but it was 1980. Um, and the first unit was started here in Bangkok, in Thailand. And this guy here is, is somebody called Nicholas White, and he's an infectious diseases doctor, too, uh, from Oxford, but he wanted to escape Oxford. Um, so he's escaped Oxford well and truly. He's been working in, in Thailand since about 1982. And he was the man who saw the opportunity in Vietnam in 1990. Um, and the opportunity really was that the Chinese had developed over a thousand years a very effective anti-malarial drug. It was a drug that was made from a herb, a plant, called Quinguasu. Or, China, or the sweet wormwood. Um, and from that drug, they extracted a, a chemical that was extremely good at killing malaria. But the Chinese weren't particularly interested uh, at, at doing the conventional randomized controlled trials that you would do in the West to confirm that this drug really was very good at treating malaria. Now, they'd been supporting the Vietnamese during the Vietnam War, so between about 1968 and 75. Um, where malaria had become a real problem in the country because everything had broken down. And they were giving these drugs to, to, to the Vietnamese army. So they were happy to release it to Vietnam. They weren't very happy to release it anywhere else. Um, but they were happy also for it to be released in, into a trial. Okay? And the first trial was done in this hospital. So this is, this is actually the ward that I go around every morning when I'm in Vietnam. Um, and at that stage, in this, in this ward, they would see about 1,500 people with very severe malaria admitted from around the country. Um, it was in a hospital, the Hospital for Tropical Diseases, 
And this was a hospital that had about 500 beds, and it served the whole of southern Vietnam, which is now a population of about 45 million people. So anyone with a severe infectious disease comes down to this hospital. Um, and so Nick got together. This is somebody called Debbie Waller, who, who was the, led the first study. And this is Hien, who's a Vietnamese doctor who um, set up and ran the studies. Um, he, he worked for the hospital. Here is the ward at the time, and there is some of the ward work going on. And so the first, the first bit of work was, this, was trialing this new, well, it wasn't new at all. It was 1,000 years old. But, it, but, but to Western medicine, it was new, this new antimalarial drug. And, and what, what we found was that it was incredibly effective. Okay, so the conventional treatment, so this is quinine. So this is the 400-year-old treatment I was talking about. Okay, this is survival here. So 100% survival down to 70% here. And this is time here. And the, the important thing is just to note that there is a difference between the artemether and the quinine, and that the people who got artemether in their treatment um, did very much better. They survived better than those who didn't. So this drug, here is the, here is the sweet wormwood. Um, it grows all over the world, but actually only in southern China does it grow where, it, where you can extract the drug in sufficient quantities. Okay, so the, the, the US got very anxious about this because they realized that to get hold of this drug, they would have to be entirely dependent upon China. And they didn't like that. So they tried to make alternative, alternative synthetic versions of this drug, but they didn't work. Um, and this is Tu Yuyu, who many of you may know got the Nobel Prize two years ago um, for discovering or being able to um, uh, <clears throat> produce um, concentrations of this drug, reliable concentrations of this drug um, in, uh, in the 1970s. And so she got the Nobel Prize uh, two years ago for that. Um, but we also had a number of other problems um, in this hospital. Very large infectious disease hospital. This is somebody with dengue. This is a, a small child with tetanus. And we see a lot and lot of brain infections with all sorts of different organisms. Um, and so a lot of the research that we do now is focused on these problems. And we do, um, we do clinical trials, essentially, to try and work out how best to diagnose and treat people with infections. And in doing that, though, we see firsthand what the consequences of drug-resistant infections are. Um, the other thing that's interesting about Vietnam is its cuisine, um, because it offers you some very interesting infectious diseases. Now, um, some of you may or may not have been to Vietnam. Some of you may come from Vietnam. Um, uh, and there is, there's a couple of infections that um, you can get from these interesting delicacies. Uh, I won't ask you if you know, but if you eat raw snails, raw frogs, and sometimes um, raw, uh, this is crabs, freshwater crabs, you can get this little parasite uh, that, well, it's called um, the rat lungworm. So its normal host is in a rat. Um, but if you eat uh, these things, and they have the larvae of these uh, parasites, they pass into the human being. But they know, these parasites know that they're not in the rat, and they get lost and they go to the brain, unfortunately. So you can get a rather nasty meningitis by eating these, uh, these things. So if I were you, when you're next in Vietnam, avoid raw snails, particularly. Um, the other thing to avoid is raw pig's blood. Now, the, uh, the Vietnamese eat everything of a, of, of a pig. Very, very, uh, they don't waste anything. But one of the things they do like is raw pig's blood. Um, a special dish. And there's a particular bacteria in Vietnam called Streptococcus suis, so the pig Streptococcus, if you like, 
that um, can be acquired from drinking raw blood that causes meningitis. And it's actually the commonest cause of meningitis in this country. So not only do we have a lot of standard infections like TB and HIV and things like this, we also have some quite unusual things um, because of some of the unusual things that are being eaten. Um, the other really important thing about Vietnam and the whole of Southeast Asia is that it's been a bit of a focal point for emerging infectious diseases. And so I was working in the hospital at this time. So in, this was in December, January, so December 2003, January 2004. And two things happened, really. We started to, the report started to come in of birds dying. And then we had um, people coming in with very, very severe um, chest infections. Um, and it became rapidly apparent that the two were connected, and it was connected by bird flu, um, or an influenza virus called H5N1. And the first 10 patients were treated in our hospital. And this was really a turning point um, in, in the unit, in, in the work that we did. So previously, we'd been quite focused on, on the conventional infectious diseases. But then we suddenly realized that um, there were emerging infectious diseases that were potentially going to cause quite a lot of problems. You may or may not remember that the year before, there'd been a very large outbreak of something called SARS. It had affected Hong Kong, it had affected Singapore. It had actually had got as far as Hanoi, but hadn't got down um, to the south. And so lots of people were taking notice, and in particular, the, U the, the, the US took notice, and they realized that um, it had been quite a long time since they'd been anywhere near Vietnam. The last time they were there didn't go too well. Um, but that they didn't, have any, they didn't have any footprint there to be able to respond to these types of infections. Um, so they suddenly made large amounts of money available, and that had a great impact on, on, the, on the work that we were able to do. And we were able to expand um, really quite a lot with, uh, with that. And so this is what we look like today. So we have um, four research units. The main one is down here in Saigon, or Ho Chi Minh City, interchangeable. Um, and we have about 300 people down here uh, working on infectious diseases and trying to improve diagnosis and treatment. We have about 50 people up in Hanoi here. This is led by a, a Dutchman called Rochier. Um, this too is attached to a hospital, the National Hospital for Tropical Diseases. We also work up in, in Kathmandu. I'll tell you a little bit more about that work um, shortly. Uh, uh, and this is Buddha, who is a, a Nepalese physician who runs um, a research unit in this hospital here, which is called Patan Hospital in, in Kathmandu. And lastly, we have um, work done down in Jakarta. Now, there's something called the Eichmann unit in, in Jakarta. So Christian Eichmann um, was the discovery, the, the discovery of uh, the cause of beriberi, which is a nutritional deficiency, and it's caused by lack of um, thiamine or vitamin B1. And he discovered that in about 1905, and won the Nobel Prize, and he, he built a research institute, or rather, a research institute was built in his name, which is a beautiful Dutch building in the middle of Jakarta. And Kevin here, uh, an American who's been in, in Indonesia for about 20 years, runs that unit for us. And he works predominantly on malaria. Um, in, uh, there is a lot of malaria in Indonesia, as many of you may know. So that's what, what our unit is like, and, uh, but actually we work across... A, a large part of Southeast Asia. So we have research collaborations and friends that we work with all over the region, um, and that allows us to do um, interesting things. Um, 
So I just thought I'd tell you a few stories, really, to illustrate the importance of antimicrobial resistance. Um, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about malaria. I'm going to talk about enteric fever or typhoid fever. And then I'm going to talk about some antibiotic misuse in the region and the rise of, of so-called hospital superbugs. Okay? Well, I'm just going to start with malaria. So malaria is the commonest and the most serious parasitic disease uh, that there is on Earth. Um, it is transmitted by mosquitoes. Mosquitoes inject the parasites into people's blood. Um, they go to the liver, and then they come out of the liver to make you sick. And when they come out of the liver, they exist in the red cells. So this is the red cells, and these little dots here are the parasites in people's blood. And that's how you make the diagnosis. You can look for the parasites in the blood. And they can make people very, very sick. Now, the number of deaths in the world actually has dropped over the last decade, and you can see it coming down here. Okay, so, but there are still around 450,000 people who die from malaria every year, and there are probably around 220 million people who get this infection every year and become ill. So it's still a very significant infection. It's actually much less common in Vietnam than it was 15 or 20 years ago. So the, the picture I showed you of the ward where they were admitting one and a half thousand people a year with severe malaria. Now we actually probably only see five or six people a year. But malaria is still there. So this is a map of Vietnam and the red areas are where malaria is. Actually, malaria is quite uncommon in the north of Vietnam. Um, and the main pockets of malaria are down here. So Saigon is here, up here, and these are the highlands of Vietnam. Um, the problem with malaria, as with all infections, has been resistance. So this is sorry, it's a slightly large amount on this slide, but just concentrate on the red um, rings. So here we have history going along here, so time going along from 1630 and the um, Chinchona bark in Peru and the quinine that I was telling you about. So that's discovered here. Then a really important drug called chloroquine, discovered at the end of the Second World War. Um, incidentally, uh, the Second World War caused a complete hiatus in the production of quinine because most of the production was in Indonesia at that time. Um, and the loss of Indonesia to the Japanese halted um, our ability to get quinine to um, Allied troops, which was a very serious event, actually. Um, uh, and chloroquine was developed really rapidly as a consequence to that need. But it was a very, very effective drug, and it began use here but almost immediately resistance appeared. And I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. And then, so resistance appearing here. Then there was another drug, which is um, called SP. I won't, I won't, no need to know what the details of that are, but SP, resistance emerged. And then you've got down here, so in 2006, seven artemisinin drugs, which are the drugs that I was telling you about from China, um, became the, they became recommended for everyone in the world with malaria at this time here. Okay, but the story of, of, of the rise of resistance to malaria is, is a really fascinating one, actually, because in every single case, for every single drug, it has started in Southeast Asia. Nobody knows quite why that is true, but it is true. It started in a relatively small area on the Thai-Cambodian border, and it started there, and it has spread 
um, westward into India, and then from India it has gone into East Africa, and from East Africa it's gone to the whole of Africa. And so when this happened for chloroquine, so this was between about 1950 and about 1975, the consequences were absolutely devastating. And literally millions, and this is particularly children, millions of children died as a consequence of resistance to this drug. Um, and exactly the same um, happened for the other drugs. Um, as I say, no one really knows quite what is so special about this, this particular region in Southeast Asia, but it's happening again. So unfortunately, in 2007-2008, the first reports of resistance to artemisinin, this, the Chinese drug I was telling you about, the first reports um, became available in 2007. Really, really worrying that it looked as though history was repeating itself and that Southeast Asia, again, was being this... Um, uh, the, the nidus for a new rise of drug resistance. So this just shows you heat maps. So we, as, you, as you can imagine, this is a rather important problem, and we've been following it very carefully. And this just shows you heat maps of, of, of the resistant parasites moving westward um, into Myanmar at the time. So this is actually, this is work from uh, about, about two years ago, um, where, so you, could see, you can see the limit of resistance here, running across Myanmar. And now it's around here. Okay, so it's close to, very, very close to getting into India. The other thing that's happened is that, so previously, there were lots of different mutations occurring that were, that were associated with resistance. Now there's just one. The parasite seems to have settled on one that it, that it likes, if you like, um, and it's, uh, it's, it's a parasite that can cause plenty of disease, um, and it's spreading also with resistance to the other drugs that are used in the region. So the consequence is really quite bad. So, so this, is, this is Hien, who I showed you a picture of first, who, who was responsible for setting up our research unit with Nick. And this is Nien, who works with him. And he works, still works on malaria. And these are so two, two important slides. So this shows you time along here, 2012, 13, 14, 15, and his proportion and, um, well, proportion is the important one here. And so this is, the important thing here are the red bars. Okay, so these are treatment failures. So these are people who got malaria who have failed treatment completely. So they take the drugs, they're still sick, still parasites in their blood. Okay, and you can see that that is rising dramatically. And now if I was to take this through to now, it would be up at about 50%, 30 to 50%. So this is very, very bad news. So that parasite is spreading around Southeast Asia and is causing people to fail treatment. And this just shows you the different don't, don't worry about what, what this says here, but this is the lots of different mutations that have occurred over time that are responsible for the resistance. And you can see here in diff, that they're placed in different colours. So down here is between 2009 and 10, here's between 2015 and 16. And then suddenly, so in 2014, 15 and 16, you just get this one mutation responsible for resistance. So this, if you like, is the superbug, the super, the super malaria that has decided that this mutation is the one that it wants, this is the one that, that gives it the best benefit, um, the best means of survival in this particular setting, and that's become dominant, and that is now spreading through Southeast Asia. So I'll just change tack a little bit now um, and talk about enteric or typhoid fever. So I thought what I would do with typhoid fever before coming to talk to you is just um, Google quickly famous Australians who died of typhoid fever. Um, and this man came up. Does anyone know who this is? No. Um, he, his name is Henry Scott. He was captain of the Australian cricket team in 1896. 
and he died of typhoid fever in 1910. He died a little bit after English cricket died uh, in 1882. Um, but he died of this infection. And, and so this is a bacterial infection. Um, it is caused by two organisms called Salmonella typhi and Salmonella paratyphi. That's a picture of it. And without treatment with antibiotics, it is often fatal. Um, Australia had a problem with typhoid fever up until about 1945, 1950. So this is, these are, this is Australian data for whooping cough in black and typhoid fever in, in here in, in the dashed. And you can see in 1910, 80, nearly 80 people out of every 100,000 were suffering from typhoid, and there was no treatment for this at that time. And that fell dramatically. But what's interesting, and this is a, this is a sort of truism of many infections actually, is that you'll note that, that most of the the decline in infections occur before antibiotics became available or before any vaccination became available. So it was just an improvement in um, socioeconomic conditions, really, that was associated with the reduction in, in disease like this. Um, but unfortunately, so we work in Kathmandu in, in, in Nepal. Um, unfortunately, the, the conditions in Nepal are absolutely perfect for typhoid fever. Um, there are um, very large numbers of contaminated watercourses. Uh, it's very difficult to get clean water, particularly from a tap. Uh, and often people don't use taps, they use other sources of water like this. So there are, in the city you can find uh, wells and you can find springs uh, that are often contaminated with typhoid. Um, and unlike in many countries, so this, just, this is a graph just showing the numbers of cases between about 2007 and 2012 in different regions in, in, uh, in Nepal, it's going up. Anyway, Buddha, Nepalese physician, trained in, in, in Nepal, actually worked a little bit in Canada before coming back, is very interested in typhoid. And we work with him to try and do trials of treatment. And this is, this is a typical view um, of, uh, of Kathmandu City with the mountains behind. Um, so there is a long history of, of resistance, antibiotic resistance to typhoid fever. Don't need to go into this in too much detail. But the first antibiotics that were effective um, were in the 1960s and 70s, um, and resistance became rapidly evolved. So in 1972, there was a major outbreak of resistance to a drug called chloramphenicol, um, and that, that was in Mexico, and that's, that began to spread around the world. In the late 1980s, um, and particularly in Vietnam, we saw an outbreak of a, of, of a bug that was resistant to very many antibiotics, so-called multidrug-resistant uh, typhoid. And then in 1997, um, we saw an well, the first epidemic of um, what's called fluoroquinolone-resistant typhoid. Now, the fluoroquinolones are very important drugs. They're drugs like ciprofloxacin. Um, and previously, they'd been really, really effective in the treatment of typhoid, but now we were starting to see resistance. And then in 2008 in India, India we were seeing very high-level, complete resistance to these drugs. Um, but what I want to show you is what happened over the last three years in, in Nepal. And this was a study we did looking, comparing one drug, which is called gatifloxacin. It's quite like ciprofloxacin, but it's a bit better. Um, and we were comparing it to another drug. And we were looking to see whether, they, whether it was better or not. And we started a trial doing this, and we started to enroll patients. This was in around 2012, and everything was going very well until we got a call from the, the monitoring committee for the trial. Every trial has, a, has, a, has an independent monitoring committee that, that looks after the safety, really, of, of the patients in the trial. And they said, you must stop this trial now because your gatifloxacin-treated patients are failing therapy. 
um, it's happened very suddenly. It's only really happened in the last six months, but they are failing therapy. You must stop. And this just shows you what was happening. So this is the probability of failure here, increasing here. And this is the gatifloxacin-treated patients, and this is the keftaraxone. This is the other antibiotic-treated patients. And this is fever as well. So all of a sudden, we had this emergence of resistant bacteria. Um, and this just shows you what happened, really. So, so this is, uh, along this axis here is, is an assessment of resistance. Don't need any more detail than that. So the higher up the axis, the more resistance. And this is time going along between 2006 to 2014. And these are the two bugs that are responsible for enteric fever. And even from the back of the room, I think you can just see that there has just been an upward curve, particularly here, uh, to these two key drugs. So these drugs are what the WHO currently recommend for the treatment of this infection. They don't work anymore. And the WHO yet have yet to change their guidelines. Um, so still, in many parts of the world, these drugs are being used because people just don't know that resistance is there. Um, and they are not working. So this is a bad situation. The other thing, and I, and I don't mean to scare you with this particular diagram, this is just a family tree of, of Salmonella typhi, basically. Um, and it just shows relatedness. Um, but what we were able to do is that we were able to take these bugs and we were able to look at all of their genes um, and work out the, the, exactly what they look like um, and, and then relate them uh, to one another and to other bugs that have been found around the world. And what we were able to show is that these bugs that were causing this failure in the patients that I showed you were a particular type of bug. And they'd actually been given a name some years before, not a very catchy name, but um, H58. Um, and this was a type of strain that had been passing around the world uh, for about 30 years. Um, the bugs that we had had almost certainly come from India. So they'd been introduced into Nepal in about, nine, in about 2011. But actually, this bug had been spreading around the world um, for about 30 years. I shouldn't think you've, any of you have ever heard of it, uh, but um, this is a, a kind of ongoing epidemic of a, of a kind of typhoid superbug, if you like. I don't like the term superbug, but it is evocative. A superbug basically is a normal bug, so a bit like this typhoid bug, that has acquired resistance and therefore is difficult to treat. So it causes disease, but it's also, causes, but it's also resistant, so it's difficult to treat. Um, and it's spread around the world. Um, the other thing I'd like to talk about is, is antibiotic misuse um, <clears throat> in agriculture, in the community, and in hospitals, and how that is impacting particularly on hospital care and the treatment of, of, of people with bacterial infections predominantly. So we're moving more to antibiotic resistance and, anti, uh, and, and antibacterial uh, resistance. So, and it's complicated. And, and I have to write grants to try and get money to do this, this kind of work. And when I do that, uh, this is the kind of diagram I put in the front of the grant um, to try and tell the people who I'm trying to get money from to do the work that it's complicated. There's lots and lots of factors, and we'll, we'll want to isolate one of those factors or try and actually understand the whole thing, ideally. Um, but So there's lots of different things to think about when it comes to antimicrobial resistance. It's a, it's, it's what's happening in farms, it's what's happening in the community, and it's what's happening in hospitals, and it's trying to interlink all of those three things that's very important if we're going to ever do anything much about it. And I'm going to start with farms and livestock. So this is um, global livestock antibiotic consumption. Okay, in the, the, the more red, it doesn't come across very red on this slide, but the more red it is, the more antibiotics are being used. So you can see in the rich part of the world, particularly west here, there's a, there's a lot of antibiotics being used. I think you're doing very well in Australia. Not so much, a little bit down here. 
But then if you look in, in Southeast Asia, East Asia, uh, and India, huge amounts of antibiotics being used. Um, and it's predicted that, that between now and 2030, the amount of antibiotics used in agriculture will double. Uh, but it's also predicted that between now and 2030, that China will, so in this region alone, will, will consume a third of the antimicrobials produced just to grow its animals for, like, for, for, for meat. So that is an enormous volume of antibiotics. This, puts in, this is way, way more antibiotics being used uh, than in human health. This is just in animal health. This is just growing our meat. Agriculture is very important in Vietnam. Okay? It's predominantly an agricultural community uh, population. 70% of the population are involved in some kind of rearing of animals. Um, it has a lot of motorbikes, and the motorbike can be used to transport those animals. Um, I've seen some very unusual things on the back of motorbikes. This is quite an unusual thing, I admit. Uh, but I've also seen small cars on the back of motorbikes, which seems counterintuitive. But um, <laughs> anything will go on the back of a motorbike. Um, and there are very large numbers of pigs in Vietnam. So this is a pig map of Vietnam. And you can, in red, there's pig density. So the red bits are where there are more than 500 pigs per square kilometer. Okay? So there's quite a lot, there's quite a lot of red bits in Vietnam. Um, so there's very, very large numbers of pigs being grown. And there's very large numbers of antibiotics being used to grow those pigs. So this is a sack of food. That was, this was taken by one of our colleagues down in the Mekong Delta. So this is down in the south of Vietnam just sitting by the side of the, by the, side of the farm. Um, and this is the list of anti antibiotics that are contained in this food. So this is food for the animals. Okay, and just to make it a little bit easier to read, these are all the antimicrobials in there. Now, some of them you might recognize. Um, if it says yes here, it means that they're in human use. But the, the one that is really troubling, because this, this, this antibiotic called colistin is one of our last resort, if you like, antibiotics. This is the one which, when everything else is resistant, usually this isn't. Usually this will work. It's not a very nice antibiotic. It's a bit. It's quite difficult to use. It's a bit toxic. But, but nonetheless, it usually works. And yet we find that this is being fed to pigs and chickens all over the country. So you really do wonder how long this situation will last, where we can use it, uh, but resistance might well develop. So what? drives antimicrobial use in farms in, in Vietnam. Well, there is quite a lot of, uh, of infectious disease in, in animals. Um, there is very, very easy access to antimicrobials. So, so a farmer can go into a, into a pharmacist and buy any number of antibiotics. There is no law against that at all. Um, I've shown you the bags of feed which contain antibiotics. 50%, um, as I've said, contain some sort of antibiotic. And there's also there's, there's minimal, virtually none, uh, veterinary support. So that when a farmer has a sick animal, he doesn't really go to get a vet. He just goes to get an antibiotic. Um, so it's chaos, really. Um, and they're using a lot. So this is just another way of looking at it. So here is, again, the bikes um, being used to transport uh, chickens. But to produce one chicken in Vietnam takes 10 times as much antibiotic as it does to produce one chicken in, in Europe. And again, sorry, slightly complicated, but I just want you to just not concentrate too hard on this slide. But this is the proportion of bugs. So these are what we did was we got bugs from chickens, we got bugs from pigs, and we got bugs from water 
from, from, from farms that were growing shrimps and, and um, fish. And we just looked at the, at the resistance levels in the bugs associated with these animals. So here is up to 100%, here is 50%. And you can just by, just by looking at this, so the red are pigs, the, the grey are chickens, and the, the blue are agriculture. You can see there's probably a bit less resistance in agriculture, but there's still sort of a quarter of all bugs are, are resistant to. And these are all important human antibiotics. And then chickens here, and then pigs up here. So you just get the impression that in these farms, not only they're using lots of antibiotics, but there's also a lot of resistance. But it's not just farms that are the problem. So in Vietnam, you can go into any pharmacy you like in any part of the country and buy an antibiotic, any antibiotic. It's actually illegal for pharmacists to sell antibiotics, but it's not, um, the government do not enforce this law. So you can, you can go and buy anything. And it's, it's very, very important, actually. It's an important source of income for these pharmacists. So one of the things that we did in, in Hanoi um, a while ago is we just went in and we looked and we asked how much, what, what proportion of their income came from different things that they sold. So here you have the average total sales per day per pharmacy here. And then you have a number of different agents here. But the, the key ones to point out, so this and up to $30 a day, is that they sell a lot of herbal medicines, don't know whether they work, but they sell a lot of them. Um, and they sell a lot of antibiotics. And so antibiotics, each day, they're, they're, they're accounting for a substantial part of their income. So although they know that they probably shouldn't be doing it, um, and it is indeed illegal, but no one is enforcing it, um, it's a major part of their economy and a major part of, of, of their livelihood. So actually stripping it away is going to be a problem for, for, for pharmacists. So this is a, um, a colleague of mine called Steve. and um, what he did was a little experiment. So he, he, was a, he went to be a, a secret shopper. He got a few of his team, actually, to be secret shoppers. And what they do is they, they go to a pharmacy and they say, I've got a child with, blood, with, with uh, diarrhea. Can you give me something for my child, please? Um, and they see what they get. And they record what they get. Um, and this is what they found. So this is so the watery diarrhea or mucousy diarrhea. So these peop these, this is not something that you would normally give antibiotics for. Um, lots of different things um, given by the pharmacist. So this is 30 pharmacies. Um, there was a lot of um, things to uh, rehydrate, which is a very good idea. Um, there was a few vitamins. Um, there was lots of probiotics, which is interesting. They really believe in probiotics, although there really is very little evidence that they work, but lots of probiotics. So this is giving um, other organisms to try and counteract the effects of the diarrhea and quite a lot of antimicrobials. Now, you may think that this isn't very much, so 19% and 8%, but when you know that, that diarrhea is one of the key presenting um, problems for, for children under five, and that literally millions of children will be presenting throughout the country um, with, with this symptom, and a fifth of them are getting antibiotics, that, that again, that the pressure of antibiotic use is, is extraordinary. And it's felt, really. So this is um, looking at um, taking bugs from the stool of healthy people in, in Ho Chi Minh City, okay, from feces. And so here are two drugs, ciprofloxacin and keftraxone, two very, very important antibiotics that we use a lot. And what you find in these completely healthy people is that around 70% of them have bugs that are resistant to this agent and about 80% are resistant to this agent. So these are the absolutely key, key drugs and you've got nearly all of the bacteria inside people just living um, in, uh, without causing them problems, but they have that resistance. So it's not good. 
And the same is when you come to look at people who have been admitted to hospital. Okay, so this is, um, this is a study we've done very recently, and it's not, we haven't published it yet, but this is looking at all of the, the, the bloodstream infections that occurred in that hospital in Nepal between 1992 and 2015, and just looking to see whether these infections, so these are all serious infections, these are bugs that have got into people's blood and make them very sick. And you can just see the proportion that are multi-drug resistant, so rising and rising over time, so that now about 60% of these bugs are multi-drug resistant. And in a country like Nepal, where there really aren't that many choices of antibiotics to treat, this is a very serious problem. The same is also true really throughout the entire region. And there's rather a lot on this slide, but this is a summary of, of, of um, bugs from hospitals in Vietnam and the surrounding region in Southeast Asia. Lots of different publications, merging them all together. And the one thing I just want you to concentrate on are these black boxes here. Different countries along here, but these black boxes here. So this is a bug called Acinetobacter, which you may or may not have heard of. It doesn't really matter, but it's a bug that's quite common in, in Vietnam in hospitals. It doesn't cause many problems outside of hospitals, but causes lots of problems inside hospitals. And this is the proportion of this bug that is resistant to um, drugs called carbapenems. Now, these are the kind of last resort antibiotics. They're very, very effective, but they're kind of last resort antibiotics. Um, and 90% in Singapore and 80% in Thailand and so on, but just very, very high numbers of these bacteria are completely resistant. And some of these bacteria now are not resistant to any antibiotic that we know of, which is a problem. Um, and the same is true in Vietnam. So this just shows you this is a study we did in intensive care units in Vietnam um, and just looking at resistance. So just concentrate on the red bits of these, of these graphs. So this is the red bits of these uh, are very, very resistant organisms. So this is this bug, Acinetobacter. Um, nearly all of them resistant to carbapenems, this last line antibiotic. And the same true of this bug, which you may, may, may or may not have heard of, called Pseudomonas. And then you've got E. coli here. So, it doesn't really matter. The details don't matter so much, but what, what the overriding picture is of increasing resistance across all bugs in this region, really. So what is the future? Well, it's not going to get any less depressing, I'm afraid. So this is, um, so this is an estimate um, published about 18 months ago of, of what we can expect antimicrobial resistance to do to, to global mortality. And it's got various different conditions around this, this ring here from tetanus, traffic accidents, measles, and so on here. And the number of predicted deaths um, in, uh, in, about, uh, in, t in 2050. And what you've got now is that it's predicted that around 700,000 extra deaths occurring globally due to antimicrobial resistant infections. But that will rise to about 10 million in 2050. And you compare that to, to, to cancer, for example, causing around just over 8 million deaths. So there's significant concern as a consequence. And then when you look at this breakdown in, uh, regionally, um, I mean, what I'm, I'm struck with here is the relatively no, low numbers in Australia. So you, you, you seem to be spared down here. But then just look at these horrific numbers, particularly in Asia. You know, so an extra four, nearly five million deaths in this part of the world. Um, due to resistance, and likewise in Africa, very large numbers of cases. And, and indeed, it's going to be in these areas of the world, the poorest areas of the world, where antimicrobial resistance has its greatest effect. Of course, we should be worried here. Of course, it's going to have consequences to the way we're treated in hospitals over time. But the real impact, be it malaria, be it enteric fever, be it the bugs that might fly around um, the community in the hospitals, 
is going to be felt in Asia and Africa. And that's why so many people are worried. So what can and we should do? Well, it's going to take a lot of people with a lot of expertise um, to work this out. Um, we need to understand and control antibiotic use both in animals and humans. So we need to stop antibiotics being used in the way that I've described in Vietnam. That's going to require a lot of education. Um, it's going to require better diagnostics, so the ability to, to make an accurate diagnosis in people, to be able to do a test that says you have an infection that requires an antibiotic or you don't, is going to be very, very important. Um, and we need to sort out how best to treat people with these infections. We need to do the clinical trials that sort out whether we need to go with what, with what antibiotics should we use and for how long we should, should we use them. But we also need to prevent the spread of these organisms. So I've showed you, for example, in typhoid, how they, that those organisms are spreading around the world. We're worried about how malaria, the falciparum malaria, will spread into Africa. But we need to somehow prevent the spread of these things when they occur. And that can be on any scale. So it might be inside your local hospital. They will be working hard to make sure that resistant organisms don't spread around the wards. Or it might be a country, or it might be a region. For malaria, it really needs to be a region that gets together to stop the spread of these organisms. We need to, prevent, we need to get new tools, and vaccination is a very, very useful tool, because if you can stop people actually getting an infection, then you don't need to use antibiotics, and that would be a good thing. And also, and lastly, we need to develop new antibiotics. Now, there is some good news on that front. There are some antibiotics becoming available, but we just need to be very, very careful when we use them, because they're almost resistance will almost inevitably... Um, occur as I've shown you and that's it really I think we need to be very careful with these very very precious things I don't think we're being careful enough um, but I thank you for listening thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series for more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.